Okay, we're going to uh, begin this morning's message with uh, a testimony from Bill and Tom. Uh, Bill and Tom have been on two short-term mission trips together. Tom, what's your role on these mission trips? Uh, they call me Bill's dog. I'm wearing the shirt I wear. It says, don't pet me, I'm working in English and Spanish. So during the Cuba trip, Bill paid me with his pork chop bone. It's been a blessing to me to serve with Bill. I get a glimpse of the challenges faced by blind people. For example, when you and I drop something, we can usually see where it fell and pick it up. Uh, Bill may have to crawl around on the floor until he finds it. Um, After serving a week with Bill, I'm less inclined to grumble and complain. And Bill also inspires me with his spiritual insight. Bill, um, if I understand correctly, you have about 1% of your vision. So I believe a question that would be utmost in the minds of many would be, how do you stay positive and how do you not let fear rule your life? That's a question that I ask myself a lot as I go through different uh, levels of adjustment in my vision loss. I have found that as I focus on other people's needs, as I love others, as myself or uh, more than myself, uh, the less I focus on my own disability. And when I do that, God has given me the strength and I guess sometimes the insight to face the fears that I face on a daily basis, even crossing the street, simple as that. And God has been there. Uh, Bill, you um, climbed Kilimanjaro, which I think is just amazing. Uh, You didn't reach the top due to altitude sickness. Uh, What kind of impact did that have on you? Uh, It was a foolish impact. (laughs) 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 But uh, I did it anyways. (laughs) Uh, When I came down from the mountain, I purposed to seek God in ways that I have never sought Him before. I wanted to discover how God could use a person like me, for in the eyes of man, I am less than worthy, but in God's eyes, it's a whole different story. On short-term missions, step one is to rely on God, not two, not three or four. It is the very first thing that we do, and it is amazing how that happens, or things that happen when one does that. Little did I realize that my disability was a key that God needed in the mission field. For in the Philippines, I was able to minister and share my story to the Church of the Blind. In the middle of the night in Manila, as I was struggling trying to figure out what to say and share with my fellow blind brothers and sisters. God gave me some words that has given me steadfast moving forward into the future. And it is from Psalm 46, verse 10. If you know that verse, it says, Be still and know that I am God. And those words has given me strength, is God's strength, even as I continue to adjust to my deterioration of division. Amen.
Thank you, Bill, for your testimony. Bless you as you go to the Philippines. Tom, be a good dog. Those testimonies illustrate some of the things that we're going to see in the biblical text today. We're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and in this uh, text, Jesus gives a message to the church in Sardis. If you grab a Bible from the seat back in front of you, it's page 1029. What does Jesus say to a person that is struggling, maybe not physically, but spiritually? What would he say to a person that is falling asleep. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you spoke to the church in Sardis 2,000 years ago, and you continue to speak to us today through your word that is living and active. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would teach us, as you taught your first disciples, Guide us by your Holy Spirit. May we not only understand the word, but then obediently put it into practice for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is, and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I grew up in a small town called Sardis, a little sleepy village south of Chilliwack. The Sardis of Asia Minor was quite different. It was actually one of the most amazing, glorious cities in all of Asia Minor. It was powerful and wealthy. Even today, if you visit Sardis, the Roman era ruins are quite spectacular. The gymnasium, the marble road, uh, the theater, the Roman baths. There was this large, wealthy Jewish community in Sardis, and its synagogue was one of the largest in antiquity. Sardis was the first place where gold and silver coins were minted. It also claimed to have invented the, the dying of wool. Even as the city received this letter, as the church received this letter, the wool and dye industry was thriving. Sardis was almost an invincible military stronghold. The Acropolis, it sat on a hill 1,000 meters above the plain below. The citadel was there within the Acropolis. And so the people living in Sardis, they believed that if they were up there in the citadel, they were safe. In 546 BC, however, Cyrus II laid siege on the city, and one of his troops climbed that supposedly unclimbable cliff up to the city wall, went over the city wall, opened the gates, and the Persian army took the city. That act, that conquest, it so astounded the ancient world that 
capturing Sardis became a saying. When a person was facing an impossible task, they would say, well, that would be like capturing Sardis. It happened because the watchmen were asleep. It happened again in 214 BC, this time when Antiochus III was attacking the city. Once again, a soldier climbed a, a crevice, unobserved by the watchmen, climbed over the wall, opened the city gates, and it fell again. In 96 AD, when this letter was written, Sardis again was this thriving metropolis. The city had been reconstructed. The emperor cult was really strong. Even stronger was the worship of the patron goddess Artemis. You'll remember that in Ephesus there was a temple to Artemis, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Well, the the temple in Sardis rivaled that temple of Ephesus, and they believed that Artemis had the power to restore life to the dead. How does Jesus present himself to the church in Sardis? It's in verse 1. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus has the seven spirits of God. That phrase in the book of Revelation, it refers to the completeness of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, I have the spirit who gives life, not Artemis. I am the one who gives life to the dead, the one who calls into existence the things that don't exist, Romans chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus has the Spirit of God in one hand, and in the other, he has the seven stars. The seven stars are the seven angels of the churches in Asia Minor. So he has the church in his hand. He has authority over the church. The church answers to him alone. Jesus says, remember the one who has the Spirit of God in the one hand and the church in the other. Remember the one who has the Spirit of God in the one hand and the church in the other. What's he aware of at Sardis? Again, in verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Dead. You're dead. You have the reputation of vigor and zest, but you're dead. Jesus, chapter 2, verse 23, he says that he is the one that searches mind and heart. He knows us intimately. He's never deceived. He says to the church, you got this name alive, but your name is actually dead. Sardis was one of the largest churches in Asia Minor. It was well attended. It was well organized. It was active. It had sound doctrine. But Jesus says, you have this name, this reputation alive, but you are actually dead. Except for a faithful few in Sardis, the church is dead. Its fame just doesn't reflect reality. Why is the church dead? It's in verse 3, the second part. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, Jesus has the seven spirits of God. The fullness of the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying your works, they actually don't come out of a relationship with me. They're devoid of my spirit. I believe Jesus would say to this church what he said to his disciples in John 15 verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So Jesus says to the church, you're very, very busy. You're very, very active, but you have lost sight of me, the one you loved at first. You believe that you can carry on your religious routine, just practice what you practice without the active presence of the Holy Spirit. You are dead. Why had this happened to the church? Why was the church busy but actually lacking in spiritual power? Jesus doesn't say anything in this message about opposition. He doesn't say anything about suffering. He says nothing about persecution, nothing about heresy. According to historical documents, that large Jewish synagogue, it coexisted peacefully with the establishment in Sardis. And it's assumed that the church, the Christian church, came under the same umbrella of tolerance. Life was good. And they peacefully assimilated with the culture around them. They were the perfect example of inoffensive Christianity, wealthy and silent. Mickey Cohen is an extreme example of accommodation. I'm not speaking of the Michael Cohen who testified this last week. Mickey Cohen, he was a famous Los Angeles gangster in the 1940s, and he made this public profession of faith in Christ. His new Christian friends, they were elated, but as time passed, they wondered why he was not leaving his gangster lifestyle. So they confronted him, and he protested. This is what he said. You never told me I had to give up my career. There are Christian movie stars, Christian athletes, and Christian businessmen. So what's the matter with being a Christian gangster? If I have to give up all that, count me out. He slowly drifted away from the church. Now that's an extreme example, but does in some way his life echo what happens in the lives of many who profess faith in Christ and they just become Christian versions of what they were before? They put on the name alive, but there actually isn't life within them. They actually never submit to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. They never enter into the life that Jesus has for them. What's the solution? What's the path forward? The remedy that Jesus gives, it's really simple, really straightforward. It's not hard to understand at all. Verse 2, wake up! When I hear that, I hear my mother calling from the top of the stairs, wake up, Raymond! And I just want to pull the covers over my head. I'm not down here. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Five commands. Wake up, strengthen, remember, keep, repent. Because of God's grace, we can begin again. This is good news. Remember that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. So wake up now. Don't pull the covers back over your head. Get out of your spiritual coma. Repent, change your thinking. From Jesus' perspective, their works are incomplete and they must open their hearts to a move of the Spirit of God. As we said earlier, uh, the city of Sardis, it had fallen two times due to a lack of watchfulness. The enemy approached, climbed the sheer rock faces that protected the city, climbed the walls, entered the city, opened the gates, and the city fell. 
The watchmen were asleep. Wouldn't you agree that apathy marks the Canadian church? If you were to think about the Canadian church as a whole, wouldn't you agree that apathy marks the church? James Turner, in his book, Without God, Without Creed, he describes the softening of Christian belief, Christian thinking, Christian values, Christian behavior in North America. And the bad religion of the church, it encourages a a superficiality in the life of the church, people professing faith but not living it. And then, of course, it generates unbelief outside of the church. Who would ever want to follow that kind of Jesus? A recent study of North American Christians uh, revealed this. About half of the people that were surveyed, half of the Christians surveyed, said that evangelism is actually wrong. It's wrong to share your faith with another person. The same group of people that said that evangelism is wrong said that probably the best thing that a person could ever receive would be Jesus. So how can those two thoughts coexist in the same brain? Well, it's because faith has become superficial. There's this profession of faith, but what people want more than anything is the acceptance of society. And so they begin to live this inoffensive, wealthy, silent Christian faith. Don't we need a revival in Canada? Don't don't we need to wake up? Jesus says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. There's still life, but revival is necessary. To strengthen means to stand something up. Stand something up on its feet. You see, the church is in danger of losing it all, but it can be revived. I think the most vivid example of strengthening what remains for me personally over the last number of years has been the example of my wife's father, Sam Harms. He passed away on February 14th at almost 94 years of age, but Valentine's Day, I think, was a fitting day for him to pass away because he loved Jesus, he loved his wife, Edna. I think they were married for about 65 years. Um, loved his grandchildren, just loved people. Over the last four years of his life, he suffered from Alzheimer's, and as the, as the illness progressed, he needed more and more help to strengthen what remained, uh, to be strengthened mentally and emotionally and physically and spiritually. He needed help to remember people. He couldn't remember people's names. He loved music. Initially, you know, when someone would play a a song with him, especially the hymns of faith, he would remember the tune, the melody, he would sing along, remember the lyrics, he'd play his harmonica. But as the illness progressed, even the words began to escape him. In November of last year, I received this video of my father-in-law, Sam Harms, and he sang Happy Birthday to me. It was this strange mix of Portuguese and English sounds, just gibberish. I could recognize the melody. He needed help to strengthen what remained. 
If you've been in a vulnerable situation, if you have faced illness, or maybe you've been in a situation like that of bills where you're losing your eyesight, or maybe you've gone through family trauma or financial loss, if you've been in that place of weakness, you know what it means to ask, okay, what's left? And how can I take steps to strengthen what remains? How should the church in Sardis strengthen what remains? Jesus says, remember then what you received and heard. Remember what you received, the Holy Spirit. Remember what you heard, the apostolic teaching. Remember the gift that I placed in your hands and make a renewed commitment to follow me. Jesus, he has the Spirit of God in one hand and the church in the other, and he wants to bring them together and make the church live. So what have we received and heard at Willingdon? What are the good foundations of this church? In 1961... When this church was founded, many of the original members were of German background, German their first language, but they made a decision, a critical decision, to do their services in English. Why? Because they wanted to reach out to those around them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That decision continues to bless us to this day. Last year... Last year, uh, the leadership teams at Willingdon set a goal. Our goal was to lead 717 people to a first-time commitment uh, of faith uh, in Jesus. So we did a church survey a couple of weeks ago. Uh, 2,700 people filled out the survey, so thank you to all of you who completed the survey. Uh, We discovered that Of those that completed the survey, 18% had led a person to faith in Jesus in 2018. Praise God. Those 18% led 730 people to faith in Jesus in 2018. So praise God. We are grateful for what God is doing in and through this church family. Let's strengthen what remains. Amen. You know, see, sometimes people are believers just believers rather than disciples. A believer will come to church here on the weekend just to be fed fish, bread. But a disciple comes to be fed so that he or she can go fish, share their faith. In the 1970s, a decision was made by the leadership of this church to transition from a a time of singing hymns to extended worship and prayer, a cultivation of the presence of God. And the first Sunday that that was done, when people were invited forward for prayer, people gave their lives to Jesus. Let's strengthen what remains. You see, believers, uh, they'll come to church on the weekend. It's part of the routine. They come for a service. But disciples, they come to lift high the name of Jesus, to praise God, to experience his presence. And that, they believe, will lead to transformation in their lives, that they will actually leave here to worship God in all of life. In the 1970s, the leadership of this church was seeking to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and there was a strong prayer movement at Willingdon. You know, believers, they come to church on the weekend to receive some kind of blessing, but disciples, they know that they have already received the great blessing, the Holy Spirit, and so they do come for prayer, and they do come to hear the word, but more than that, they're willing to go and be a blessing out there, pray for people. Pray for the world. Remember what you have received and strengthen what remains. Remember what you have received and strengthen what remains. You see, when God is making all things new in the scriptures, 
He most often is renewing what the people of God have already received. Jesus then gives the church a warning. And remember that warnings are given out of love so that the church might avoid danger. Verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. If you refuse to come out of your spiritual coma, what happened to the city of Sardis when it was attacked and its watchmen were sleeping, that will happen to you. You'll be unprepared for my judgment. I will come like a thief. His words remind us of what he said in Matthew chapter 24. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In Revelation chapter 3, in Sardis, Jesus isn't speaking about his final return, the final judgment. He's talking about imminent judgment in the now, what will happen if they don't repent. It's a serious warning to nominal Christians who have made some profession of faith along the way, but they're just believers. They're not disciples. James chapter 2, verse 19 reads, You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You see, being a Christian has never been just about belief. People all over the world believe. Being a disciple is actually following Jesus with all that you are, a life surrendered and walking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Belief is not enough. Jesus is gracious. He doesn't end with a warning. He ends with wonderful promises. Verse 4. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." The language here, it comes out of the imagery of Sardis. There was this thriving wool and dye industry in Sardis. Uh, Jesus says that many of the garments of the church members are actually soiled, they're defiled, they're, they're stained, they're unwashed. In the pagan cults of Sardis, if you were to go in to worship Artemis, for example, you had to go with a white garment, unstained, because if you went in with a stained garment, you were bringing dishonor to the God. Another way that this, uh, I believe Jesus is drawing on, on the context here in Sardis, in the Roman Empire, when they celebrated military victories, the citizens of Rome, they would dress in white robes. So what is Jesus saying as he draws on this imagery? He makes four promises. First of all, to those who enter into his victory over Satan, sin, and death, to those who refuse to accommodate to the world around them, refuse to assimilate to that apathetic form of Christianity, those that are faithful, they will parade with him in triumphal procession of his final victory. 
And then there's more. In the book of Revelation, the white garments, they symbolize purity, holiness. Those who enter into the victory of Jesus over Satan, sin, and death, they'll be among the throng that is worshiping the Father and the Lamb. There in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So those who enter into the victory of Jesus, they're going to parade with him in victory. They will be there among the throng before the throne. And then thirdly, Jesus will never blot their names out of the book of life. Sardis had been a capital uh, during the times of the Persian Empire and the Seleucid Empire. If a name was removed from the registry, that meant loss of citizenship, removal from national memory. Jesus is saying, I will never blot out the names of my disciples from the book of life. They're citizens of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, forever. And then fourthly, I will confess their names before the Father and his angels. He'll say, Father, I bought these children with my blood. They're my faithful servants. Their identity, their citizenship, their future secure with me because they've confessed my name and followed me to the end. I spoke earlier about my father-in-law struggling with Alzheimer's. At the end, he was really struggling. Um, His mind was shutting down, no longer sending signals to his body. He needed help to eat, to rest, to reduce his pain. He depended completely on others. But in his last two days... He would raise his hands to the heavens as if seeing someone. And he seemed to be mouthing the word forever, forever. For two days, he would raise his hands and say, forever. And then he passed into eternity. In scripture, Jesus, he, uh, he sits at the right hand of the Father. He has the Spirit of God. He has the church in his hand. There's only one place in Scripture where Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father. It's when his servant Stephen is being martyred. He stands to receive his faithful servants. My father-in-law, he was faithful to the end. He confessed faith in Jesus. He he served as a missionary and he faced opposition in many places. But he continued to preach the gospel. He continued to lead people to Jesus. He planted churches. He left a rich legacy. And I believe that Jesus stood to receive him and confessed his name to the Father. Father, this is my faithful servant, Sam Harms. Bought by my blood, faithful, he is home. Whose recognition do we live for? In whose book do we want our our names to be written? Whose, Whose acceptance do we live for?
Remember the one, the only one who has the book of life and will confess your name before the Father. There is only one that can open the book of life, that's Jesus. There's only one that has the book of life, Jesus. There's only one that will confess your name before the Father. Are we listening to what the Spirit says to the churches? You see, Jesus, in one hand, he has the Spirit of God. In the other hand, the church. And he wants to bring his hands together and say, Willingdon, live, live. So in the now, Jesus says, wake up. Repent. Do it now. Change your thinking. Remember what you've received. Strengthen what remains. Surrender yourself completely. Open your heart to the fullness of my Holy Spirit and live. Receive the life that I have for you. Willingdon, live. Amen. Let's stand for prayer. I'm going to pray a prayer of, of surrender, um, a prayer asking for revival, for renewal in my life, in your lives. And so when we pray for revival, we're humbling ourselves before God. I'm going to get on my knees and pray this prayer. Um, I know we're in theater seats, it's kind of hard to kneel sometimes, but if you desire to kneel, just feel free. Get on your knees and let's pray. Jesus, you reign over all things. You have the Spirit. You have the church. You send your spirit. Forgive us for for busyness. Forgive us for the times when we're just active and we actually live independently of you. Jesus, we recognize again our desperate need of you. Without you, we can do nothing of eternal value. Jesus, forgive us for the times when we're just believers and not disciples, when we just come to get bread and we're not thinking about going out and living for your glory and sharing our faith with others. Forgive us for the times when we just come to attend a service, but we're actually not lifting up your name, worshiping you, and then going out to worship you in all of life. Forgive us for when we just come to receive a blessing and we forget that we've actually received the great blessing, the Holy Spirit. May we live to bless others, Lord. May we remember what we've received, what we've heard. May we hunger for your word. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you completely. And we ask, Lord, that you fill us with your spirit. We want to walk in the fullness of your spirit. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, come revive us, renew us, transform us into the likeness of your son, Father. Thank you, Jesus, that our names are written in the book of life. Thank you for the promise to confess our names before the Father. Oh, Lord, may we live for your recognition, for your acceptance. May we live for your glory. May we trust you in every moment of life, now 
and to the end of our days here on earth. May we remain faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.